You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Unless you're a fundamentalist Christian and you are at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference in Washington, D.C. this weekend, or you are a gay blogger and you follow these things, you've probably never heard of the Benham Brothers. Jason and David Benham are are popular Christian martyrs, and they were martyred by the evil fascist uh, homosexual rights movement. They were about to get a TV show on HGTV, Home and Garden Television, which is all about interior design and home decorating and home renovations and buying houses. And every other host on HGTV, of course, and designer is a gay person and half the people who come on the show to have their homes designed are gay people and a lot of the audience is gay people. There's not a lot of straight guys sitting around the house in fuzzy slippers knocking back Rosé and watching HGTV. Anyway, right before Jason and David were about to get a TV show on HGTV flipping houses, it came out that these two guys were pretty rabid anti-gay activists who had testified in Charlotte, uh, the city where they live, against uh, the city giving a permit to a gay pride parade, describing the gay pride parade in their testimony, David, describing the pride parade as filth and destructive and a vile activity that should not be allowed in our city. And the brothers have also compared homosexuality to Islam, lumped them in together, and said that both homosexuality gay rights movement, and Islam are part of a demonic force and agenda bent on destroying America. And all of this came tumbling out, and HGTV took a look at who their audience is and who their other hosts are and canceled the show. So they didn't get their show, and they are now right-wing fundamentalist Christian martyrs on the right-wing fundamentalist Christian martyr speaking circuit. They will never have to work again. They will write a book, and they will be feted endlessly by the Family Research Council, by the Rick Warrens and Rick Perrys of this world. It's a nice gig if you can get it. Got a flower shop? Never want to have to work again? Refuse to serve gay customers in a state with an anti-discrimination statute that covers sexual orientation and gender expression, and you too will get sued. Got a bakery? Same deal. You too will get sued, and you will be a martyr. And you will never have to work again. Anyway, the Benhams aren't really so much in the news anymore for the gay shit. Uh, they're just two anti-gay bigots who rattle around the anti-gay bigot speaking circuit. And, you know, right-wing blogs occasionally check in with the Benhams to see what idiot shit's coming out of their mouths. And it doesn't typically make news because it's the same idiot shit all the time. Demonic, demonic, demonic. The gays, they're demonic. There's one thing they said that I kind of love – uh, though in their testimony against the Charlotte Gay Pride Parade where they called you know gay people walking down the street vile and filthy and destructive, Jason said this about gay people. We're not here to bash them. We're here to tell them that Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. I love you just the way you are, but you got to be different. Jesus loves you just the way you are. Now change for Jesus who loves you just the way you are, but you suck that way. And Jesus is going to change you. And not just Jesus, the Benham brothers, they also have the power to change you. As we learned this week on the 700 Club, 
part of the anti-gay martyr circuit, where the Benham brothers were being interviewed and David said this. We had so many people from the gay community reaching out to us, and one man in particular from the city of Chicago reached out and he said things to me that made me lose my appetite. But I responded in love. After a little conversation back and forth with this gay person who was blowing up at David Benham for being an anti-gay bigot, I found out he loved baseball, and I got him tickets to a Cubs game. He shot me a Facebook post and said, I was not expecting that, and I've been thinking about this. I've chosen to walk away from my lifestyle. There you have it. There's the cure. Conversion therapy doesn't work. Praying away the gay doesn't work. Exodus International, the pray away the gay org. 30, 40 years in the pray away the gay business shuts itself down and admits it doesn't work. They were barking up the wrong tree. It wasn't praying away the gay. You just needed tickets to a Cubs game. What you need is an anti-gay bigot to give you tickets to a Cubs game and you will be stri- – my dad took me to Cubs games. Didn't work. But it was my dad and my dad, you know, wasn't an anti-gay bigot or bigoted enough for the magic to work, for his Cub tickets to become my ticket out of the gay lifestyle. Of course, you know, that's not exactly what they mean. They don't mean Cubs tickets are this magic ticket. Cubs tickets will turn you gay. What they mean is – what they're implying here I think is that – we gay people are gay people because no Christian's ever been nice to us in our lives. And if some big strapping, kind of gayish appearing twin with a hot gayish appearing twin would just be nice to us, we would stop sucking dicks. Why won't they be nice to us? They're so mean to us. I'm going to suck me another dick until they're nice to me and then I'll stop. I don't know. You know, I think we should run with this, though. If this is where they want to go next, you know, away from pray away the gay and Jesus hates you to I got you something. Maybe just all the gays and lesbians and bisexual and transgender people in the United States should create Amazon wish lists. Put them out there and say, hey, you never know. Might not be Cubs tickets for me. Tickets to Hedwig and the Andrew Inch on Broadway. That might do it. Uh, you get me those tickets and I'll let you know if I'm still putting dicks in my mouth. And if I am, maybe then we can move on to, I don't know, a dinette set, a stereo. Get me something. And this is better. I get, This is progress. You know, we here have prominent anti-gay bigots saying that, you know, the new tax should be to shower the homos with prezzies. Get us some presents. We will put the dicks down and back slowly away from the dicks. And maybe maybe it's just not one gift. Maybe the gayer you are and the more committed to the gay lifestyle you are, the more gifts you need from right-wing fundamentalist Christians. You know, Cubs tickets for this guy, that was enough. Maybe I need season tickets to the Seahawks for next year. And not just like in the seats, like a box. I want a box all to myself. We'll put that on my Amazon wish list for the anti-gay Christians to go and get me things. Because maybe if you got me lots of great things, I would stop putting my husband's thing in my mouth. All right, coming up on today's show, your questions, tons of them, and Anna Sale, host of WNYC's podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. Anna Sale is not just here. Anna Sale seizes control of my show and interviews me about monogamy and non-monogamy and the damage that cheating can do. And we have it out. Me and Anna Sale coming up today on the micro, and that is a long interview and it extends into the magnum SavageLoveCast.com, that's where you can subscribe to the Magnum edition of the show. And now, your questions. Hi, Dan. 
I am a 25-year-old female, straight, living on the East Coast. I'm pretty independent. I pretty much hang out with friends, but I own my own house and um, my own car, and I work full-time, so I'm pretty career-oriented. Um, dating never really, you know, fit into my schedule, but I ended up falling in love with a guy who lives in Australia and through work, and now we are dating each other. He lives abroad, and it's actually pretty good. It fits my lifestyle pretty well. Um, we do do visits in between, and that makes it easy, um, you know, to be together and um, have sex, and, and it's great. Um, but between visits, we can't have sex. <laughs> it's great to communicate through phones and stuff now, but sex still doesn't work abroad. Um, so we're left to texts and videos and Skype and stuff, which is great. It seems to work for him. He seems to, to like all that, and, and he enjoys it. But for me, I need a little something else. I don't know if there's anything else I can do. What can you do um, other than, than video and Skype and, and naughty text and stuff? There's no fixing this. You can do some teledildonics, not that any of that really works all that well. You can get a dildo that you put in yourself that he can press a button on his keyboard on the other end of the world and the dildo will go bzz, bzz. You can do that. It's no replacement for sex. The only fix for this is resolving it and the pressure is going to continue to build. that This feeling of dissatisfaction, this unhappiness with the status quo with him down there in Australia and you up here in, in North America – or him up there in Australia and you down here in North America don't want to be hemispherists about this. That pressure, that unhappiness is the impetus for you to either move to Australia or for him to move to you. And so I'm sorry, there's no fixing this, particularly if you want to keep this closed and monogamous. And it sounds like you do. And I completely support that. I would, if I were you uh, and it were possible Rent that house for a year. Take a sabbatical if you can. Move to Australia and see if you guys work because you're on other continents, which is sometimes the case. I would not, if I were you, move there or let him move here permanently if you've never lived together uh, in the same hemisphere ever. Uh, you're going to want to get together just to make sure that this wasn't a great relationship because you were so far apart. Sometimes the long distance thing is not an obstacle. Sometimes it is what makes a relationship work. This could be one of those times. So get together six months a year. See if you're as good together as you are apart. And then somebody's going to have to move somewhere. Uh, hey, Dan. Male, straight guy on the East Coast in my mid-30s. And I was just listening to an episode, which I've got to stop doing at night because I always have so many things to think about after an episode that I then can never get to sleep. So thanks. And don't do that to me anymore. I'm actually calling because you were just in an episode I was listening to talking about a friend of yours who goes through these relationships so quickly. You know, he starts to see the potential inevitable end of the relationship and then he kiboshes the whole thing. And so he has these short relationships and you insist he needs to just accept uh, who he really is about relationships. And I was sitting there thinking, oh, Jesus, uh, if there's a straight version of that, that's me. So 
so you just kind of might have cracked something pretty big open for me that I've been wrestling with for a number of years. And uh, thanks. And now what do I do with it? <laughs> How does somebody reconcile that that might be their pattern for better, for worse? You had said there's great and valuable things in short relationships, which I believe I come away from every relationship learning so many amazing things from somebody. And I never date the same kind of person twice. They're always so different. And I love every relationship I've ever had. Am I destined to never have one relationship? Is that, is that good? I don't know. So my friend who would get a new relationship and then game it out, sort of run it through a computer program and he could anticipate the end and so he would end it. And that always just drove me nuts because he would complain about not having a lasting, loving, long-term relationship. But he kept sabotaging all these potential lasting, loving, long-term relationships because he would game them out and identify certain things that would potentially ultimately lead to the end and just jump to the end and end it himself. And and this hearing about this, uh, you know, it was painful for you. And my friend had to, you say, accept who he is about relationships. And, and let me unpack that for, for listeners who might not know what you and I mean when we say that. Uh, Sometimes people really don't want to be in a committed long-term relationship, but they either don't know it or can't articulate it. They, they can't say it. They can't admit it. They know it. They can't admit it because what we're all supposed to want is a committed long-term relationship. We want the one relationship that lasts forever. That's what we're all supposed to want. That's what we all agree that everyone is supposed to want. And there are people out there who that's actually not what they want. What they want is variety, newness, what they get satisfaction from is the falling in love part, the new relationship part, the shiny new girlfriend-boyfriend thing, and a series of valuable, loving, short-term relationship STRs is what they want. But they can't admit it, even to themselves. So they wring their hands and bemoan their sad fate because they can't find the one person that they can be in a relationship forever. And their friends stand around slack-jawed watching them discard Potential get person after potential person after potential person, all of whom could have been great lifetime mates because there's this problem, there's that problem, there's this flaw, there's that flaw. As if those of us who are in long-term committed relationships aren't with people who have flaws. They do. So to your situation, caller, just based on the little information you shared with me, You've dated all these women. They're always really different. You're always really excited about being with someone who's new and exciting and different and the things that that person brings to your life. Now that you know that about yourself, now that you can articulate it, what does that portend for your future? Well, you can have a long-term commitment potentially with someone so long as it doesn't preclude those new and exciting relationships with new and exciting and different people. And there is, if you're a regular listener to this show, there is a relationship model that allows for that and accommodates that, where you can have a long-term committed relationship with someone that you can share your life with and also have those other relationships, those fulfilling and enriching short-term relationships. You can be poly. You can be poly and have one primary partner and have other short-term relationships with women who aren't interested in you as a long-term partner because you should be clear and honest about the fact that there's your primary partner and then your relationships with others are going to be short-term because that's what you want. You want these loving short-term relationships and these new connections. So if you want an LTR, you can have an LTR. You just can't have the kind of LTR that precludes future STRs. 
Dan. I am a straight 25-year-old female, and I'm looking for some insight on breakup etiquette. I've been casually dating this guy for about six months, um, but we worked together and were friends for two years prior to dating. Uh, however, I've been traveling all over the country the whole time that we've been dating, so I only see him for a few days, about once a month anyway, but I always see him whenever I come into town. Um, since this is so casual, I'm wondering, do I need to officially tell him that it's over, or can I just kind of slide out of it by not seeing him the next time I come into town? He knows I'll be coming to town for a few weeks, but we haven't been talking much lately, so I think it'll be pretty easy to just not give him a heads up that I'm coming and just stay with friends instead. And I know that seems kind of shitty, but this whole thing was really casual, and I kind of get the feeling that he's not really into me anymore, and everything has been kind of one-sided for the past month. He was a friend first on some level. I feel like I owe him an explanation, but he, he also seems like he's trying to passively end things by not initiating communication. So tell me, what's the best way to handle this? So I listened to your call and I just have a really simple question for you. Yeah. What's up? What is so scary or hard or awkward about just sending him an email that says, it feels like things are winding down and, you know, I'm coming to town, but I have a place to stay and no hard feelings and you're a great guy. And next time I'm in through town, let's grab a drink. And anybody ever asks me about you, any woman who's interested in you, ask me about you, you'll get a golden reference. Like, why is that so hard? Well, he wouldn't necessarily get a golden reference. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there's that. Okay, so don't put that in. Don't include that. But <laughs> you, you feel like it's winding down. You sense from him, and I think it's quite obvious if he's like – you know, disappearing or not communicating with you that it's winding down for him. And rather than just like say it out loud, things like, seems like things are winding down, no hard feelings. Let's hang out sometime. Even if that's an insincere, let's hang out sometime. Why can't that be said? Why is that, why is that scarier somehow and more inhibiting than just like letting it ice over? Cause there's event, you said you guys sometimes work together. Oh, we did. Yeah, we worked together for two years, so we were work friends for a while. Oh, okay, but you don't work together now? No, we don't. But do you move in the same social circles at all? Is there a chance that you're going to be face-to-face at some point in the future? Like, see him in a bar, in a restaurant, across a crowded room, at a friend's party? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we would probably run into each other. Okay, but what's going to be more awkward? Like, to say this thing <laughs> that feels a little awkward, like, feels like things are winding down, no hard feelings, you're great, even if you don't mean it, you're great. And, and I wish you well, or having to see him across the room after you both just sort of faded away. Right. Yes. You're, you're, you're totally right. I just need to, <laughs> to own it. Cause you're going to see, you're going to, you're going to see each other again. You're going to be in the same room and together again at some point, right? Yes. Yeah. Think about Definitely. how awkward that will be if you didn't send that email or that text saying right. we had a great time. I think you're a great guy, even if you don't mean it. And it seems like things are winding down for, on both ends and no hard feelings. Look forward to chatting you up again sometime. Blah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because then when you see him in that crowded room, you know what will happen? He'll smile and nod. You'll smile and nod. Maybe you guys will exchange a few pleasantries. Whatever it was that when you first began working together, whatever sort of spark that was there, uh, th- that attraction that then became a sexual attraction, but that initial attraction that was just a personal attraction, you guys will be able to tap into that at that moment. You'll be able to speak to each other. Yeah. Because, because I mean, think about it. You'll be able to speak to each other at that moment because you cauterized the sexual component of the relationship because you, 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 you ended that cleanly. So he won't be standing there thinking, yeah. oh, if I'm nice to her, she's going to think I'm hurt or that I still want to fuck her. And you won't be thinking, I can't look at him or talk to him because I don't want him to think I still want to fuck him. 
And it'll be so <laughs> awkward and painful. But if you send that text, if you send that text, it won't be awkward or painful. You'll be able to walk up to no, him. No, that, that would, like, yeah, just, I don't know. He, he, um, he's been dealing with some anxiety and depression issues and, and that's kind of putting a, a kink in it because his medication has been messed up. So it's, it's kind of in the back of my head where I'm just like, I don't know if it's you or the depression or the medication or what's going on. So that was just kind of a consideration that I had. Well, I think I do think that is something you should take into consideration. And I think you demonstrate your consideration in your text, not by saying, no, <laughs> okay. you're depressed. And so a text maybe, will suffice. I can, I can dump this guy over a text. <laughs> a text will suffice, but also like, and you know, I like you. And if you ever want to shoot the shit, you can always blast me a text. So he knows that there's like a connection there that he can at least sometimes reach out if only to say, Hey, I'm feeling this. How are you? Uh, so he knows that there's still an interpersonal connection, if no longer a sexual or romantic connection. Okay. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Hi, Dan. I uh, just want to say uh, I liked your uh, podcast. I started listening today and uh, decided I want to call in with a question. So my question is that uh, my girlfriend and I, uh, we've got a pretty great sex life. It's been slowly but surely getting into a little bit more kinky stuff mostly and not really we're not really uh boxing it in like a bdsm dominant submissive type of uh package but that's kind of where it's going and she wants it a little bit more rough she wants it you know me to talk dirty to her which i don't have a problem with actually that turns me on really really uh like a whole lot and so what my question is and my, my issue that i'm having is that when she becomes that aroused and she's like asking for it, she's wanting it so much, you know, that's just such a trigger for me that it makes me go right away. You know, like I blow my load, like, oh man, like it was kind of overwhelming for me. You know, so the issue I have with that is that I'm kind of leaving her hanging in that aspect, you know, and then, you know, she understands. She's like, okay, that's cool. You know, like she's not, you know, giving me hangups about it. You know, she's not blaming me for it. But, you know, I also, I want to repay that. You know, I want to be able to do that for her. And and it's not that I don't want to. It's just that, like, oh, my oh man, it's so hot. So I guess my question is really more, like, uh, do you have any sort of insight in, like, you know, kind of, like, framing myself mentally on how to do this and how to be that a little bit more? Because, uh, I mean, I guess it's not necessarily in my personality, per se, to be, like, you know, suck that dick, bitch, you know? Um but, I mean, also, I mean, that's the kind of porn that I watch, too, and that's stuff that I'm really interested in. So, uh, you know, I could definitely do that. I want to be able to do that, um, you know, something that I aspire to. So any insight on that would be great. Um, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. So the problem isn't that you're incapable of doing this dirty talk thing. You you did it. You've, you've done it. The problem is that you come right away when you do it and you leave her hanging. So you can do it. You can do the dirty talk thing. And if the dirty talk is something that she wants and you're feeling a little inhibited, and this is just a general note out there for anybody who's wanting dirty talk, that the person requesting it can initiate it. The person asking for the dirty talk can ask questions. What are you doing to me? What do you want to do? You can ask questions. Also, general note for those of you who want to do the dirty talk and are having trouble, say what you're about to do. Say what you're doing. Tell them what you're about to do. Tell them what you're doing. Tell them what you just did. I'm going to fuck the shit out of you. I am fucking the shit out of you. I just fucked the shit out of you. That's dirty talk. Pretty simple. Anybody can do it. As for the fact right now that it's triggering for you, that the minute you bust out the dirty talk and she's going horny crazy, that you come 
you don't have to leave her hanging. If you're adventurous enough to be doing BDSM, if you're adventurous enough to be engaging in this kind of dirty talk, you're adventurous enough to have a dildo or two or a toy or a vibrator at hand. And if you come too quickly, you can keep going. You can pick up a tool and put that tool to use and you can keep fucking her, just not with your dick, with the silicone dick from the nightstand. And then you can dirty talk about that, that she's so insatiable it takes more than one dick to get her off. You can just incorporate that seamlessly into your scene, into the dirty talk. And how hot would that be? And I promise you that you've just introduced this dirty talk. It's triggering for you. The more you do it, the less triggering it will become over time. So this is a problem that ultimately will resolve itself. In the meantime, get thee to a woman-owned feminist sex toy shop and buy thyself a pinch hit and dildo. Taking a quick break from the calls, uh, on episode 399 of the Savage Lovecast, uh, we had a conversation, I had a conversation with uh, a caller, a young woman who tragically had been given a terminal cancer diagnosis and she only had so much time left to live and her problem and what she wanted help with was the fact that she had always wanted to be married and her boyfriend with whom she'd been with for a while and they were committed to each other was really reluctant to marry her. So I gave her a call and we had a conversation about her situation. Here's a little snip from that call. And I tried to warn him, like, if this goes badly, which it might, you could be on on the short end of the stick. You could be living with me for several years of not-so-great times and then lose me, and it would be awful. Um, but at the time, that's what he said. And then when it came up the third time, the you know, the week I had the scans and I wasn't sure what was going to happen, I sort of mentioned, oh, if it's cancer again, you have the out. And he was like, ah, ha, ha, that's funny. We're together for life, buddy. And I was like, great, okay, so if we're going to be together for life, do you think we could get married? And he's like, oh, yeah, we can totally make that happen. And then the diagnosis was actually real, and all of a sudden he was like, uh, wait, what, You? I promised to marry you, what, uh, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I think I'm pretty sure. He kind of said that it would be okay, and I'm going to maybe hold you to that, because I would like to have at least a, a civil ceremony before <laughs> I go into treatment for a very long time. Since that episode aired, uh, we've heard every once in a while from other listeners who were curious uh, how it all turned out and how the caller was doing. And people wanted us to give her another call and check in. And we did that today. So ever since our conversation aired uh, back on episode 399, we've heard from people who wanted to know how you were doing. So we're giving you a call and I, and I want to know how you're doing. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, I'm alive. Does that satisfy the question? Um, besides that, I'm well. Um, I'm very lucky that I happen to have a particularly indolent, uh, slow growing, that is, disease. So it's decently controlled at the moment with some new drugs that have been developed only in the past few years. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and then I get to go to work every day and do everything that I normally do while I <laughs> wait and see how long I have before uh, before disease starts growing at a rapid pace. Well, we're all rooting for you. And the other, the, the other question, the other thing everyone's curious about is your boyfriend. Is he your husband now? So I actually, because of course I was already a fan, was reading through all the comments and there are a lot of people out there who have very firm opinions about whether or not my boyfriend and I should actually get married after my call. I will answer, I am not married. Nor am I engaged, but oh. I'm happy about that. Are you? Are you still together? 
Yes, yes. This was never an ultimatum. This was mm-hmm. um, mostly a question of, this is something I really want, and how can I get my partner to be on board with this? I, there was never any intention to break up. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you heard before, we moved in together. Um, we even have a cat together now, so I guess that's you know sort of one more step down the <laughs> pseudo-married path. Um, but a, a lot of it just comes from you know not feeling panicked. Mm-hmm. feeling like I have disease that's under control from medication and such, and therefore there is no, oh my gosh, I'm going to die in the next few months. Let's go to a courthouse right now. Let's have a big party. I feel a lot calmer that we can take our normal path. Does he know you came on the show to talk about this? Has he read the comments? How, did he did he listen to the advice? <laughs> I, I directly addressed him at one point while we are in our conversation. Uh, yes, yes. And, and, and how does he feel about it? Yes, he knows that I was on the show, and he was like, "You did what?" <laughs> <laughs> he was like, "Well, I mean, they don't—they don't know who I am. They don't know our history. Of course, you know, everyone's just going to assume that as the boyfriend who's saying no of the cancer patient, like, of course, I'm a bad guy, mm-hmm. and he's not a bad guy. He knows that. I know that, especially, and." You know, I I think I agree with a lot of the commenters who are like, she's just panicking. I was panicking, but that doesn't mean that I don't want to get married eventually. I I don't think that means that he doesn't want to get married eventually, but I feel happier. And that's probably just having to do more with my own personal outlook on my life and my lifespan to be progressing the way we would be progressing if I weren't sick, if we were just normal mid-20-somethings moving in together and thinking about getting married in the future, but not right now because of sickness. That's wonderful to hear. Things seemed a bit direr when we first spoke. Your prognosis seemed a bit grimmer. I'm really thrilled that that's not the case. And I more time I And that he has more time, but ultimately uh, makes the right decision and fucking marries you or I'll come and haunt him. Yeah, well, we, we hope that I have more time. You know, that could, that rug could be pulled out from under me any, any, you know, every three months, mm-hmm. every three months when I get scanned, it could all of a sudden be the scan that says, nope, it's time to go do the, the scary procedure where you've got, you know, a 40% chance of surviving and having a remission, a permanent remission. But you also have that mortality when we do it. And, and that's, you know, a, a scary thing to have hanging over your head. But yeah. there are a lot of as I said, I'm on medications now that didn't exist a few years ago. There's a lot of new stuff coming down the pike. Uh, I've got a very optimistic doctor. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are living with disease, especially types like cancer, for many, many years now. And they're managing to be more controllable. So thank God for research. And you also have a lot of people out there uh, in the Savage Lovecast audience who are rooting for you. And the, the rooting for the plural you, rooting for you, rooting for your boyfriend, whatever ultimate decision uh, you both come to, you both make, uh, we're all on your side and we wish you the best. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us again. I'm so, I'm so happy to hear that you're still with us and I'm less happy to hear that you're not married yet, but I'm happy to hear that you're happy with where you're at right now. But it doesn't matter if I'm not married because the point is that I had the conversation and it was a good, you know, fuel on the fire for conversation to play devil's advocate for both of our opinions and to really talk about what we wanted together, not what I wanted alone and not what he wanted alone, but what we wanted together. And that was a positive outcome. You are the sanest person I've ever had on this show. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you. Um, is it saying something that the famous person is also one who has a potentially terminal disease? I don't know. Like I've met some people who were, uh, who had terminal diseases, who, who didn't have new powers of clairvoyance or uh, higher emotional IQs as a result or anything. So I think that's a coincidence that you have this disease and you're as smart and sane and rational as you are because we've all known people in our lives who were facing illnesses <laughs> who didn't suddenly become Gandhi or didn't suddenly become smarter than they were before. So uh, well, trust we, we're, not me. Gonna, I'm no we're not going to credit the person that you are to the cancer that you have. You sound like a wonderful person irrespective of that. Thank you. I, I still have, trust me, weeks and months where I'm just a panic-stricken, freak-out monster. But some of the time, I can be really sane and really quite wise beyond my years, modest included. Well, thanks for jumping on the phone. We wish you the best. And uh, maybe we'll check in with you again in the future. If I'm still picking up the phone, you know I'm okay. Hi, Dan. I'm the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a 32-year-old, hetero-flexible, hetero-amorous female in the Bay Area, and I have an etiquette question for you today. I have been talking to this guy off of Tinder, and good conversation, we don't have solid plans to meet up, but we it's in the near future, certainly. And I got a text this morning from this number, I don't know who it is, saying, Hi, you don't know me, but I believe you've been texting my boyfriend, Lyle, off of Tinder. I just need to know if you've met. And I am inclined to re-emphasize, <laughs> re-ask the question if he's single. I mean, if they have some sort of agreement, that's cool with me, you know. But it doesn't sound, how her text was worded, it doesn't really sound like it's a mutual agreement. I don't know who this person is. It could be anybody, you know. It could be, like, an ex of his who's feeling crazy, or it could be, like, one of his friends who's trying to, like, test me. I have no idea. So my first inclination is to gently confront him about it, and to not answer this person, because I don't know who they are. Like, I don't know who he is either, but he's the one that I have been corresponding with. So I feel like he's the priority for me to communicate with. Yeah, I'm just not sure. The likeliest scenario is she discovered that he was on Tinder, and he told her that he only got on Tinder to flirt innocently and never had met anyone that he had chatted with on Tinder. And she wants to confirm that. So she asked you, have you ever met? And you haven't. What's the harm in telling this mystery person that you actually haven't met? It's the truth. Whether it's a malicious friend. I don't know what a malicious friend would get out of this. I don't know how that plays out to a malicious friend's benefit. I don't see how this is a punk or a prank or a whatever to ask that question if you're the goofy malicious friend who got the phone. It's the truth. You haven't met. You can also text him and say, I got this text at the same time that you answer that question truthfully. I got this text from someone who said you're their girlfriend asking if we've ever met. I told them no, that we'd never met. In your shoes then, I would tiptoe away from these people, both of them, because this is just a Tinder exchange. You've had a couple of text messages on Tinder and already you're mixed up in drama. I think that's disqualifying. If before you even meet, before the first date, the first, if even before the first face-to-face -face interaction, 
you're mixed up in drama, then there's no first date. There's no first face-to-face or face-to-crotch or crotch-to-crotch interaction. Now, in this case, you're going to swipe this shit left, all of it. Lyle, the girlfriend, all of them swipe left. Hi there. I'm a married 50-year-old woman who uh, has been married for 19 years, and we dated two years prior. My husband knew um, when we got married, my libido was way younger than his. And two years ago, he decided that uh, we should try the lifestyle. We started with a trip to Caliente in the DR, and we had a huge fight over um, that, and we fought for about two weeks after. Then we found a local club that we went to, and then uh, we did a trip to Desire in Mexico, and we didn't really play with any other couples, but we met a couple that took us under their wing, who we went to North Carolina with and sort of played with where we each had our respective partner on the same bed. And we've done trips to Caliente in Florida where he met, we met a couple, and uh, the woman sent him a naked picture on our way back to the plane, and he proceeded to text her every day while I was at work. So I'm having a hard time. I have very low self-esteem, and I get very jealous when he's putting all his attention to another woman, such as texting this woman on my birthday and other days that I feel he should be giving me attention. He told me lightly that the fact that he has a vivid imagination is what gets him off. Since I've done everything I can do, I need to grow up. He says he loves me, but I think what he really loves is what he wants me to be. We have sex every day, sometimes twice a day. He won't lay down and watch TV with me unless it's a porno. He's on the SLS site every day, the cheeky site, listening to your podcast. Um, his whole world has become LS. I don't know what to do if you have any advice. Divorce him. I'm thinking about what Ann Landers would say to unhappy married ladies who would send her letters, her column in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and they would describe you know, a, a rather unpleasant marital relationship and implicit in the letter and sometimes stated in the letter was their fear of being alone. And Anne's response was always, you need to ask yourself what would be worse, being with him or being alone. And it sounds to me, Anne would write, that with him is worse than alone. And this is one of those cases. With him sounds much worse than alone. Sounds like he's leveraging perhaps, and I'm reading into the situation, your fear of divorce or being alone uh, to get you to do things that do not give you pleasure and do not make you happy. And you are really meeting needs for him. You are really going places with him and accommodating and reaching. And he is not repaying that effort with any sort of gratitude, love, intimacy, mutuality, reciprocation, anything. And I don't mean sexual reciprocation. You have a lower libido than he does perhaps by far, and you're having sex with him twice a day and you're going to swingers events and he is treating you as if all you are to him is this sex object that he can use, abuse, and not just use sexually, but use to get himself into spaces that without you there, he can't get into like lifestyle events, like swingers clubs. It just sounds toxic. The whole situation. I'm embarrassed someone you describe behaving this way, you also describe as a listener of mine because it embarrasses me that someone who would treat you like this, treat anyone like this, 
is a devoted listener to this show because he's not treating you with any respect or kindness or love. He's using you. If he's listening, I'm embarrassed to have you as a listener and I'd like you to turn the show off. You are no longer allowed to listen to my show because you weren't really listening to the things that I've had to say about relationships and how they should work. So caller, I am so sorry for what you've been through, for the pain that you're in. I'm sorry that I have been used or pointed to as a rationalization to get you into these circumstances and situations that have caused you such pain. And I want you to know that I am not on his side. I am on your side. And I think you should get out. You called the show, your next call, your lawyer. Hi, Dan. I am 28. I've been not dating, but hooking up with this guy for a couple of months. He's 30. We met through mutual friends and, and had this instant attraction, this incredible sexual chemistry. When we hooked up for the first time, he told me right off the bat that he is a devout Christian and some things sexually are off the table for him. Uh, one thing, uh, vaginal intercourse, everything else has been completely on the table, which hasn't been a problem for me, even though I happen to be a devout atheist and sex positive and somebody who thinks it's you know, lame to think that you do every sex act imaginable except for one and you are preserving your sexual purity, but whatever, to each their own. We've hooked up a handful of times in the last couple of months and it's just been so fucking hot and good. Uh, no penis and vagina, but everything else. But not anal, because it's not for me, but Hands, oral, pit fucking, tea bagging, filthiest, most delicious, dirty talk. It's been totally casual and easy and fun and just mind blowing sex that I've really been enjoying. Um, but he was over the other night and we'd been going at it for quite some time. And at one point he was lying next to me and fingering me and I'm feeling his cock up against my thigh. And I said something like, oh, I wish you would ram your cock inside me or something. And um, he rolled on top of me and did just that. And then less than a minute, I come, he comes, explosions, fantastic. Except he's now a ball of guilt and shame because he got carried away in a moment and broke the promise that he made to himself and to God by putting his penis inside me for like 30 seconds. And um, so clearly to his guilt, he would like for us to date and, and try having a relationship because even though he hoped and planned to wait until he was married to have intercourse, maybe it's meant to be. And I am the woman that he's going to marry and will be the only woman that he puts his penis inside. Um, I like this guy. I don't know him well. I really like fucking him. But I'm thinking it's the safe bet that I'm not going to marry him. It's just the devout Christian slash devout atheist issue alone. Um, but I, I've been leaning towards, but hell, uh, why not date him? I'm not seeing anyone else. And, um, you know, I could have more great sex and he can have this feeling of satisfaction or whatever. Like, oh, we gave it a try, but it didn't work out. <laughs> I'm worried that this guy is going to try so hard 
to fall in love with me, that he is going to force himself to want to want to marry me and just to reconcile his guilt and blah, blah, blah. And, um, I mean, I don't feel like I owe him anything and I'm glad that he doesn't see it that way, that I forced his hand or tricked him into fucking me. Um, but I think it might be kind of a dick move to be like, Oh, thanks for your virginity, but I'm afraid you're going to get weird. So I'm out. Um, curious to your thoughts. It was always weird. It was weird long before he rolled over and stuck his dick in you and had that orgasm, that distinction without a difference orgasm, the same God that was rooting for him to be a virgin on his wedding night. Didn't want him teabagging strange ladies either or having orgasms in other places or crevices of other ladies either. I mean, he's being, he's bargaining with the sex negative, crazy sky God conning him thinking he could get away with that. And it is horseshit. And you don't have to be a party to it. You don't have to let him down queasy. You can walk. You can go to him and say, look, your sex negativity, your, your sex shame, your obsession with a God who's obsessed with what you're doing with your dick. And you didn't do anything with your dick. That wasn't a do unto others as you would have them do unto you moment. You obeyed the golden rule with your dick entirely. I wanted that done unto me and you done it. That obsession is warping your life and bringing you nothing but grief and pain. And really, is that what God is for? Really to come between you and your loving, tender, considerate, passionate desires. What a waste of time and effort. I were in your shoes. That's what I would say on the way out the door. I have been in your shoes. I've said exactly that 30 years ago when I made the mistake on more than one occasion of sleeping with the gay version of this conflicted, messy guy. And there are a lot more of them out there than there are of him somehow, even though gay people are a much tinier percentage of the population. If you want to assuage your guilt, you can go out on a few maybe dates with him to see what might have happened. But as an atheist and a rational person and an empiricist, I would encourage you as a fellow atheist, rational person, empiricist, to reason with him a little bit to try to get him to open his eyes to the contradictions and the hypocrisies and the ridiculous horseshittery of his pretend God's pretend obsession with sex, which has turned into what? A real obsession with sex of his. God doesn't have a problem with sex. God, if he set the universe in motion, made sex and sex made us. You can say these things to him. Maybe they'll land, right? But you're not required to stay and you're not required to marry him to help him resolve this conflict. You know what's going to resolve this conflict? The cognitive dissonance that already exists, the gulf that is already opened between what he thinks he should be doing and what his body is actually out there doing. That's a journey for him. He's going to have to do that work himself. We're going to take a quick break from your calls uh, and take somebody else's calls for just a few minutes. Anna Sale is the host of Death, Sex, and Money. It is a podcast uh, from WNYC in New York City. You can see it. Pardon me. You can hear it at deathsexmoney.org. I was recently a guest on Death, Sex, and Money, and we talked about something I talk about a lot, something I'm asked to talk about a lot, monogamy, infidelity, adultery, cheating, ethical, non-monogamy, unethical, non-monogamy. And 
Anna's listeners, listeners to Death, Sex, and Money, had many, many reactions to the things that I had to say. Uh, and they did a follow-up show, which was on Death, Sex, and Money last week. And now joining me from New York to be a guest on my show to play some calls that came into her show is Anna Sale. Hey, Anna. Hi, thanks for having me. It's, it's good to have you. I'm a little confused. Uh, we were just talking before we started recording about how confusing this is. You're coming on my podcast to talk about your podcast and play some stuff for me about your podcast, and then we're going to talk about that stuff from your podcast on my podcast. So people really have to listen to both our podcasts now to figure out what the hell is going on. Exactly. Okay, let's go. You, you take over. You're interviewing me on my podcast. Go. Okay, well, I, I, the reason we did this follow-up episode is because we actually had an exchange at the end of our conversation on the Death, Sex, and Money episode where you turned it around on me and interviewed me and asked about my relationship. So let me, let me play that tape. Are you in a committed relationship? I am. So what would you do if you found out that he cheated? Or, and what do you think he would do if he found out that you cheated? I, I don't know what I would do with the hurt. I, would have, I, I have a really difficult time seeing a way outside of it being okay. Yeah. If and when it happens, you know what people always say when, you know, when they talk about the people they love most in their lives? I would, you know, I would take a bullet for this person. I would, you know, walk through fire for this person. Infidelity, when people uh, believe in monogamy and monogamy is what they want, infidelity is that bullet. So that bullet analogy, Dan, I heard a lot from my listeners about. And I also heard from people who just said I was listening to your show and had to pull off to the side of the road and burst into tears because I just found out about my wife's affair. And on an, and somebody else who said, you know, yeah, the bullet analogy works if you're talking about the power of forgiveness, but but there's the question of whether you want to be the person firing the gun. Mm -hmm. So because of this sort of response, we said, okay, it sounds like you all have had a lot of experiences with cheating listeners. So we asked three people to submit their stories about cheating. And, and that's what we stitched together in this episode that just came out. Just these, you know, hard stories about either, you know, the shame of being a cheater, the humiliation of finding out that your partner was cheating on you, how you decide if it's a relationship worth saving. Um, and, and so I have a few stories that I want to run past you because I think there's some lingering ethical questions. Um, okay. Some and, I and, and I guess this is only fair and only makes sense. I interviewed you on your show. I turned the tables on you and you get to turn the tables on me on my show. So here we exactly. go. Exactly. Payback. Um, so the, <laughs> the first person I, I want to bring is a woman named Allie um, from Massachusetts. She told me a story about being 29 years old, falling in love with a man at work, feeling like she'd never felt before. And it just so happened that he had a wife, a two-year-old, and an infant at home. Um, and so they were together for about a year. They're no longer together anymore. And she's now in a monogamous relationship with someone who's not in a relationship. So they're, they're together, monogamous. But she feels like she got this wisdom from the affair. Let's take a listen. And I almost feel like I have this insider secret that, you know, I know different things that men almost need in a relationship in order for it to survive. And if my boyfriend ever cheats on me, I would primarily, I don't want to say primarily, but I would partially blame myself. And I would say, you know, what was I not providing that he needed, that he needed to get from somebody else? So I heard that tape. For, when we were talking, when I was talking to Allie, initially my, my back just went up and said, but what about the responsibility of this guy who's made this commitment to his wife? And if he's not getting what he's needed, why didn't he say it to his wife first? And so it, 
So my question is, like, maybe, what? wait, wait, wait. Maybe he did say it to his wife first. That's true. I and, and, and I don't want to smile on somebody who's got two small children at home. And I'm, I'm the one who has told people and scolded people that, you know, there's going to be a drought after you have children, that there will be at least a year, maybe longer, where your right hand, dudes, if you've made babies with someone, is going to be your sex partner. And that's what you're signing up for when you have children and young children. So I'm not saying that if he asked and she couldn't bust out with the moves that it was her fault, but you're assuming that he didn't ask. I am assuming that. The, the, the I- assumption always in these cases is that the relationship would be perfect and firing all, on, on all cylinders if everyone could just talk uh, or, or if everyone did, you know, and, and if they didn't talk then – or if they did cheat, then they didn't talk. And sometimes things are at an impasse and I'm not talking about the specific example of that particular relationship just generally. And, and what, what do you think is the ethical responsibility of the third party who's not in a relationship but knows their partner is? I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't want to be the tool by which someone – abused, you know, their spouse or someone they'd made a commitment to. Uh, I wouldn't want to be in that role myself. Uh, you know, I, maybe that's my way of saying you have an ethical moral responsibility not to be that person without embracing those terms. What I think is revealing about this call is the, I don't know, the mind's up this woman has put on herself. She would blame herself if her boyfriend cheated on her. What does that say about how she feels about this ex-partner of hers, the, the married man, and who is ultimately responsible for the choices he was making? But also it, you know, it speaks to the delusions people have about why people cheat. Uh, very often people cheat uh, because they're seeking something they can't get from their partner to, to whom they've made a monogamous commitment and foolishly so if they're incapable of keeping a monogamous commitment, which is variety, novelty, newness, risk. Danger, something unexpected, something unknowable. Often, you know, Esther Perel writes about this very convincingly and movingly in her book, Mating in Captivity, that people can be very much in love with their partners and still cheat on them because only through that cheating can they get some of that other stuff. So it's not that you were deficient in any way, but you were a different kind of person, different kind of sex partner, and the person that they cheated with brought something to the table or to the bed that you could not and cannot. So don't regard it as a negation. So there's that brings me to another listener that I talked to who I'm calling Rose. It's not her real name because she has had a pattern of cheating. And if you would look over her life, you would say there's some things that she just doesn't get when she's in a monogamous relationship. She acts out. Uh, let's, let's listen to her tape. I've been married three times and each time I went out and cheated to find, I guess, love. And I, I have learned that it's not a normal behavior, but it's a predictable one. And I'm learning that uh, I really would like an exclusive relationship at this point. And I'm trying that really right now. I hope that it works out this time. So there you hear there somebody who looks back over their life and says, this is this is how I behave in relationships She's in midlife now and, and doesn't want to keep repeating that behavior. But then, she should, then she should stop making commitments she's incapable of keeping. She should stop making monogamous commitments. She clearly cannot keep them. Is that something you can't change? Maybe it's something that you can change. I think when you examine this, you know, Rose's life, I think it's unlikely that it's something that she can change. But the zap that the culture puts on your head about the moral superiority of a monogamous commitment is so powerful and thorough that even people who 
make and make and make and fail and fail and fail at monogamy keep attempting it and are encouraged to attempt it. Mm. When what we should say to people is know thyself. At this point, Rose should know herself well enough to know that she's lying to someone if she says that monogamy is something that she can execute flawlessly over the life of a marriage. And what, what, what is, what is a tip that you give some, what if, what if Rose were to say, but no, I really, this is what I really want. I would say, are you sure? Because your actions belie that. Are you really sure this is what you want? Or is this is what you've been convinced a good person should want? Those are two different things. Yeah. Particularly a woman, right? And those are two different things. And I would also say to her that, you know, we say to people about monogamy, maybe I said this on your show when we talked that, you know, monogamy means you won't have sex with anybody else ever. Uh, we tell people that if you're in love, you won't want to have sex with anyone else. And that's not true. You will still want to have sex with somebody else. But also monogamy is not natural. We're a pair bonding species, but we're not a sexually monogamous species. We're socially monogamous, not sexually monogamous. And monogamy is a struggle because you're going to want to fuck other people. You are. Everybody does. Everybody struggles with that. So if you only fuck somebody else besides the person to whom you've made a monogamous commitment once or twice over the course of the decades of a marriage, you are good at being monogamous, not bad at being monogamous. Like here is the person who keeps stepping on the rake, right? Mm. And at some point you have to say to her – Stop strolling around the garden. Stop walking through the grass. And the grass in the garden that she's strolling through is the, the, the garden of monogamous commitments. That's where the rake is for Rose. And it keeps popping her in the head and hurting other people, these men to whom she has made and failed to keep monogamous commitments. And so we should say to her, Rose, look at the way you live. Look at the way your relationships go. And what you do and the choices you make. Perhaps you should rethink the kind of commitment that you make to somebody because you can make a commitment and you can be loyal and you can allow for outside sexual contact without it being a relationship extinction level event and without Rose herself convincing Rose that sleeping with someone else means she's looking for love elsewhere. You know, That's one of the things, one of the zaps the culture puts on women's heads that it's only okay to have sex for love. That women are the romantic sort of, you know, pair bonding, you know, the slut shaming shit. Like one of the sort of ways that warps the lives of uh, of many women is they can't feel ownership over their own sexual desires when they're literally just lust because that means you're a dirty girl and a slut. So if you want to sleep with somebody else, you have to round that up to love. And to round that up to love means the relationship you're in now must not be love. Otherwise, you wouldn't feel this about this other person. And you have to feel this about this other person to rationalize just fucking this other person, which is what you only, which is actually what you want, which is just the fucking sex. And it's just, you know, the, 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 the culture of sort of the monogamous ideal creates these disasters. Rose might be still in her first marriage if we didn't define love and monogamy and commitment in quite the sort of fragile and stultifying way that we do. The damage has been done to Rose and Rose's marriages by this idea, not by really even Rose's behavior. So that brings me to Sherry, who's, who's the last listener that I, that I want to bring some tape from. She is in her first marriage. She's been married for almost 20 years and had an affair. And after the affair, she told her husband and they decided to renegotiate the terms of their marriage. And they have decided that occasional flings outside the marriage 
is okay. And that was her condition of staying in the marriage. Let's listen to the tape. I, I, you know, I hate to think how, what, what people would think of me if they knew that, (laughs) because I don't think that, that the reaction would be good. I think that, you know, and I question myself about it. Did I emotionally blackmail him and basically say like a ransom letter or something, you either do what I want or I'm going to blow up our lives. And that is what happened. That, that is what happened. That is, that is what, what I did, you know, right or wrong. And I, I don't, I don't quite know whether it was right or wrong yet. So, so there you have Sherry really getting clear about what she needs in her marriage. But then this question of, is it a fair question to ask? We'd have to ask her husband how he feels about it. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that it's kind of unknowable. Like, did she issue him a demand? Was it or, or, you know, a hostage situation? Or was it something that he wanted to? Is it something that he's happy with too? And she walks around every day saying, you know, is he really happy with it? Or is he just telling me that this is what he's happy with? But it is the, it's the, they're the terms that they've arrived at that have allowed for their marriage to survive. This is an instance, and I'm glad you're playing this tape. This is an instance where an accommodation that allows for infidelity, for non-monogamy, for ethical non-monogamy going forward. It wasn't ethical the first time she cheated. It won't be cheating the next time she sleeps with somebody else. But that arrangement, that accommodation saved this marriage. Listen to what she said. She wouldn't have been able to stay in this marriage without this latitude, without this freedom. And so the freedom was granted and the marriage survives. And is that not a good thing? We all wring our hands when people get divorced. We all point to the divorce rate as a sad, sad statistic. And here is a case where allowing for outside sexual contact kept the divorce rate down by one tick. And she says their sex has improved. Which is often the case. You talk yeah. to people who, who open up their relationships, you talk to people who swing, often what you hear from them are not just that they've had sex with other people and that's been awesome, but their sexual connection you know, in the relationship, the sex they're having with their long-term partner improved. Maybe because they've stopped taking each other for granted, maybe because they now have new mysteries and, and an unknowable quality. Again, what Esther Perel writes about that, you know, that, that sense of mystery and danger and risk that we seek out in, you know, in our erotic partners, which is sort of at war with what we want from our relationship partners, which is contentment and familiarity and intimacy, which is kind of at war with eroticism. Those are kind of in conflict, those impulses. You can reestablish some of that with openness if you have the capacity for that. Not everybody does or should. And so to to her, you would say, you know, don't question whether it was emotional blackmail. He consented and he no, is an equal partner I, in this relationship. And No, I would say I would say question it. But I would also say you can take yes for an answer. Huh. And she got yes for an answer. But I think she should be considerate of his feelings and she should check in with him and continue to check in with him. And this relationship was closed. It is now open. A relationship that was closed and then open can close again. A relationship that's open can cl- and was always open can close for a period of time. But they should, you know, if what they really both put the primary, you know, they really regard as of primary importance is the survival of the marriage, they should constantly be checking in with each other and constantly be actively negotiating the terms of uh, of their marriage going forward. And that should be an active and ongoing conversation and not a done deal. It was a done deal, monogamous commitment for 20 years, and that didn't work. And they didn't have a conversation about that to, to open it. 
until it was a fait accompli that it had been opened in a, in a way that was a violation. It was a betrayal that they managed to get past. And, and I think that's good. And not everybody who, where there is an affair and there's that violation and betrayal. And, and I encourage people to get past that. I am, I am not invested and everybody gets past that by negotiating an open marriage or, or an open relationship and accommodation of that sort. Many, many people get past that affair and reestablish their monogamous commitment. And I'm in full support of that too, so long as everyone's communicating. Someone compared her wife's affair to a vacuum cleaner that you get as a birthday gift, how it's like such a bummer in the moment, but years later, she's glad it happened. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's smart. When we began talking at the top of the show, you mentioned that you know you played my comments in the, in the, the first time I was on uh, Death, Sex, and Money, where I talked about adultery and infidelity. And so many people called you with their stories and so many people had to pull over to the side of the road because they just found out that they'd been cheated on. The thing I – the reason I harp on this all the time is not because I'm pro-adultery or pro-infidelity or even pro-open relationships. I'm pro-people knowing them. So the reason I harp on it all the time is it's so common. Yeah. Cheating. Well, and, and the emotional stakes are so high. And, but the stakes are high because of the way we define monogamy, because of the importance we place on successfully executing a completely monogamous commitment for 50 fucking years in a relationship. That's what makes the stakes so high. But infidelity and cheating is so common that maybe we should take some of the air out of that tire. Maybe we should stop placing so much emphasis and importance on flawlessly executed monogamous commitments over 50 fucking years as the sole or most important test of a marriage's value or success. We define marriage as a success, as a success of monogamy is successful, knowing that as evidenced by the, the reaction that you got, so many marriages are not successful on the monogamy front. So many relationships are not. So, yeah. so maybe we need to shift. The, there are other forms of loyalty. There are other ways of measuring and testing someone's commitment to a relationship, to a marriage, to you, to a family, than just did they touch anybody else with their genitals ever again? Yeah, and then you can focus on loving and being loved, which is right. so hard. <laughs> you focus on loving and being loved, and, and one of the yeah. things that comes with loving and being loved is sometimes taking a bullet, sometimes and forgiving someone for betraying you in this way. And knowing that this kind of betrayal will touch most marriages, most relationships. Maybe we sh- maybe our default setting should be forgive. That, that, that forgive should be the first place we go and not divorce. And, and you know, this has to be judged on a case-by-case basis. I was saying on the show just a couple weeks ago, there's a difference between, you know, you're together 25 years, one of you is done with sex, the other cheats, oh my God. Like, what are you going to do then, right? There's a difference between that kind of cheating and fucked my sister six months after our first child was born and my sister's pregnant by my husband. That's a different kind of cheating. Like, maybe yeah. we also need to apply a case-by-case analysis to infidelities and cheating that allows for nuance and ambiguity. Yeah, the, the patterns of betrayal where there was a long history. I mean, that, that of the people I spoke to, those are the ones who just can't shake the feeling of just being destroyed, you know? And I think that is a different kind of infidelity when there's a, when there's a humiliating pattern. I was just going to say humiliation is a factor that compounds the damage done and and often can't be got past. I, I don't think people should be welded to each other. And I don't think people should have to stand by somebody who's abused them and, and I don't smile on serial adultery. 
It's part of the case-by-case judgment thing. But are we happy Bill and Hillary are still married or do we hate them for still being married? <laughs> do, you think Hillary's a, do you think Hillary Clinton is a fool? I do not, for the record. Nor do I. Well, Dan Savage, thanks for coming on my show and letting me come on your show. <laughs> it was a pleasure. It was a new different kind of experience for someone to come on my show and interview me. Um, you know, I actually think that you and I are probably in agreement on this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do. I mean, that's why we did the episode, because it's like, let's let some light in on these stories. I mean, because I think that is a huge part of the pain is the feeling of isolation. I think when it comes to my own life. Yeah. Again, like it's it is it is it is really scary. It's really scary to like. It feels like I'm walking into the wilderness without a guy. Now, here's the gift I want to give you as you march down the aisle, as you're as you're ready to make this lifetime commitment. I want you to imagine a circumstance under which an infidelity could happen that you could forgive him for, that you could get past. That doesn't mean you could forgive him for any kind of infidelity, any kind of adultery. But that isn't it in the best interest of the long-term survival of this commitment that you're about to make, of the marriage you are about to build together, of the family you may have together, for you to at least be able to imagine being Hillary? No, I think for me, I'm more terrified of, of cheating and hurting him. The hurt. Hurting him. Good. Actually, that's <laughs> good. Maybe you're less likely to cheat if, you know, you can – empathize in that way that you wouldn't want to do unto others do unto him that way because you wouldn't want that done unto you golden rule shit i totally support golden rule shit we talk about that a lot on this show (laughs) and so maybe that's good that will stay your hand but you both you know I, i think people should sit down in marriage counselors offices before they get married and talk about this like what happens if i cheat or you cheat what happens yeah well thank you for coming on the show Thank you for having me. It really is. I just learn something new every time I talk with you, Dan. It was a really you. fun uh, experience. Tell us, for, for listeners of the podcast who have not yet uh, found their way to deathsexandmoney.org, tell them quickly uh, about your show and why they should be listening. Uh, because it's about death, sex, and money. So it's conversations <laughs> that try to get through the small talk to the big stuff that we all deal with. Uh, and it's at deathsexmoney.org. And if you're curious to hear the show where Anne and I first began to have this conversation, go to deathsexmoney.org and search for me and it'll pop right up. Anna Sale, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. That was, that was really fun. I really enjoyed it. Good. I'm so glad. Thank you. Hey, uh, I am a, um, a straight male. I'm 35 years old. And um, I'm calling because uh, you know I've heard almost all of your episodes. And I find myself now in a situation where I've been with a woman for about three years. And, uh, you know, we're not married, but we have a, a now a two, now about a two month old baby together, you know, on purpose. And, uh, I find myself, you know, wanting to be in that relationship very much. You know, I don't want to lose that relationship, but at the same time, I, I, I'm almost kind of overwhelmed with the, with, you know, the need to have sex with other people. So, uh, I think that my options may be kind of obvious at this point, um, because she is, open to it, but sort of maybe in a few years after a relationship, you know, and the kid is older and all that, but it's really kind of distracting me. I feel, I mean, I really feel like I'd be a better contributor to the relationship emotionally and every other way if somehow I could sort of fulfill this need that I have. So I'm open to whatever suggestions you have. Thanks. 
when you say your options might be obvious, the only obvious options I can think of are cheat or leave, right? Those are the obvious options. The gentlemanly option, the I helped make a life, a child with this woman option is to hang tough for at least a year. She's saying a few years. Give it a year. She just had a fucking baby. It's two months old. She's probably still feeling as if she's been turned inside out and she is exhausted. And there you are tapping your fingers saying, I know you just had a baby. It's been eight weeks. Can we please negotiate the terms of our relationship? That has to be very unwelcome at this moment. If I were her, I would be saying, you're going to have to wait a few years before we can have this conversation. I'm a little spent right now. You say you've been together three years. You have a two-month-old baby together. You don't mention whether this was something you negotiated with her. You talked about potential openness at some point in the future before you decided to have this baby together on purpose. I hope you did. She's open to open, you say, and hopefully that's not a lie. Some people say they're open to open eventually at some point in the future, and it's a lie. They just don't want the person who would rather be in an open relationship to break up with them, so they allow them to live in false hope, hoping to run out the clock somehow on their desire for openness or their desirability and ability to land a partner in any sort of open situation. But if you honestly believe that that's not the case, if you honestly believe she is open to open, give it a year. Suck it up. I know it'll suck. You say you're overwhelmed by this desire to fuck other women. Your girlfriend is probably overwhelmed by the desire to get some fucking sleep. You're both going to be a little overwhelmed in the next year. You have an infant at home. And if I were your girlfriend and I had just had a baby... And it was up until this point, a monogamous relationship with some asterisks on the end saying open at some point in the future, perhaps through mutual agreement. If I were your girlfriend and you came to me when the baby was eight weeks old and said, we have to have this talk now, we have to do this now, I would feel abused. I would feel as if my partner were leveraging this moment of maximum vulnerability against me because she is probably exhausted, probably more dependent on you than ever at this moment while this child is an infant for your emotional support, perhaps your financial support, for logistical support. And if you come in with some ultimatum about openness, whether I get your permission to fuck other people or I'm out, she's not going to feel, if I were your partner, I wouldn't feel as if I could freely choose to give you my permission or not. I would feel as if I were compelled to give you my permission to fuck other people under a form of duress. I don't think if you love this woman, that that's how you want to start the open phase of your relationship with her exhausted, vulnerable, upset, and angry, giving you permission to do this, which she'd rather you'd not do not now because she fears you'll leave her otherwise abandon her with an infant otherwise. So dad, focus on your new baby. Jack off a lot. It helps. It does. And bring it back up in a year's time, a year and a half tops and have that conversation at that point, but drop it for now. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the latest episode where the guy was wondering what to do, how to break up with his girlfriend after he went to Taiwan I just want to say your or your advice was spot on. I recently had a guy break up with me five days after our college graduation. I was devastated, and he said that he had been feeling this way for a long time, but he didn't want to end it so close to the end of college. 
Uh, and it just really made everything, uh, our good memories and the time that we spent together feel like a lie. And I would encourage him to not do that to this young lady. She deserves to be with someone who loves her as much as she loves him. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the caller in the last episode who was grieving the loss of her friendships. And I just want to say that I've been living with my boyfriend for two years, but never alone. We live right now in a house of six other people, six of our friends, and we do it together, but we're also apart and we also have this community of people around us. And frankly, I don't ever want to live just with him alone, even if we do get married and have kids one day, because I know myself and I'm exactly like that caller and just him living, living together alone. It's just not enough. And I find myself really depressed sometimes when we are alone like that. But the having a community of people around us in our home is just the best. And I've really figured out that I value community over privacy. Hi, Dan. I was just calling to respond to the most recent episode that you put out about the woman who doesn't uh, understand emotionally how she could get past somebody cheating. Well, I want to speak from personal experience as somebody who was cheated on that I actually think it's one of the best things that my partner and I could have gone through because it brought us, we were in an open relationship for two years, long distance. And then when we came back together, he uh, drunkenly made a horrible, stupid mistake that was, that was violating and when he came clean about it, it it kind of shook our world. And going through that experience together brought us closer together, allowed us to understand more about what our open relationship meant and what it meant to be in, living in the same city, being close, and that we needed to reestablish our commitment to each other. And going through that with him made me a stronger, more open-eyed person and made him a more open and vulnerable person and we're who knows what's going to happen in the future but I just know that going through that experience was actually one of the best things that I could have gone through and so it is possible to come through that on the other side not only stronger but actually grateful for that experience. And we're going to leave it there. Before we go, though, I want to read a quick tweet from the Horn Next Store, Susie Q. James, who writes, I think brown backing should mean unprotected anal sex. Now all caps. That is not going well, i.e. poop or Santorum making an appearance. I agree. I think that's actually a good distinction. I originally proposed that we redefine brown backing in honor of... Kansas's bigoted governor Sam Brownback as unprotected anal sex instead of barebacking. But maybe barebacking should be barebacking until that moment that barebacking has a Santorum problem, in which case barebacking becomes roundbacking. Thanks for the suggestion, Susie Q. James, you should follow her on Twitter. She's the creator of the Horrorcast, and she's a sex columnist for the SF Weekly and has her own podcast. Check it out. 206-201-2720 is the number here at this podcast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. The Hump Tour, the Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn festival, is rolling into Los Angeles March 12th through 14th at LA's downtown independent cinema. Go to humptour.com for information about tickets and submitting for next year's Hump Festival. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Anna Sale on Twitter at Anna Sale. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thanks for coming.